lesson this morning is from Hebrews chapter 7. We are working through the entire chapter, yet this morning we will simply read from verses 11 through 28 for the sake of economy. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty Father, as we come to you this morning... We come reading of things mysterious from ancient times, an order of priesthood of which we know very little. And so we ask God that you would clarify these mysterious things from your word and that you would draw us to Jesus. It's his likeness that these symbols were presented to us. And so may we know that abiding priest who continually intercedes for us. Draw us near to him this morning. And may it be he that we hear speak. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In May of 2009, Melissa and I completed the renovation of a small home in Arlington, Virginia. With the high prices of homes in northern Virginia, we were very fortunate to find a small fixer-upper that we were able to purchase. It did require a lot of work. We were planting a church at the time, and on the side, I was a general contractor. We finished up, I've returned to that role by the way, we finished up, 
But then several months later, we began to notice some strange things. We found some small, agile bugs that were around the house. They were particularly located in our boys' room. We didn't think much of it because, I'll be honest, at that point, bed bugs were only a rhyme. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. I had no clue they were even real things. Little did I know that there was a pandemic of this in the larger cities in North America at this point in history. This is some 12 years ago now. But they were coming in with people who were immigrating to the United States or people traveling in hotels, and they were coming into larger cities in large swaths. And then bedbugs can very quickly reproduce. Some 13 children born each day. It just takes two to make things go right, and we went from a few to many, you could say. <laughs> After we did a bit of research, it all came together what was happening. Our house guest we had inherited from the former owners. We then knew what signs, and we said, oh, that's what that was. We did some further research about what to then do. So we quickly called an extermination company. They came in and helped us. But after their first service, it wasn't done. And so we began to do further levels of research, madly stripping the beds, cleaning and washing everything meticulously, trying to find these little critters to try to rid ourselves of this. Because if you've ever shared in this experience, you'll know the traumatic nature of it. Every night, being bitten by something over months of time begins to get to you. You begin not to sleep. In fact, many people who are victims of bed bugs actually suffer from PTSD. I fully get it. <laughs> we were tired, we were frustrated, and we were broke because <laughs> we were washing everything so furiously. So then, after a bit of further research, because we were not done, we found a company in Northern Virginia actually who employed scientists. They studied bed bugs for a living. They were graduates of Virginia Tech, and so we felt very confident in hiring them. They brought in a trained canine, <laughs> the bed bug dog, to identify where our bed bugs were. And sure enough, despite our first efforts to exterminate them, a few had survived. And they explained how tough these little suckers were and that it was difficult to kill them. So they came in with a second treatment. We were confident because we had engaged the scientists. Certainly they know what they're doing, right? But then after the second treatment, the bed bug canine returned, and we were not done. I did think my marriage was going to be over at this point. We were all coming unglued. No one was sleeping well, except for the children. They managed to survive it. And so we went back to the bed bug company and asked, well, what do we do now? They said, well, here are your options. One final treatment plan, two courses you can go. You can tent your house or we can heat your house. They call it cooking. They would bring in three large heaters weighing some thousand pounds and heat the house to 140 degrees for six hours. And this would pretty much guarantee extermination, they said. Also, along with that, we had to take all soft materials in the house, and we had to take those to the fumigation lab. All of this had to be coordinated, so you can imagine this was somewhat like a military deployment. We had U-Haul vans and 
mad helpers coming over to assist us in getting everything dialed in for that one fateful Saturday where the house was to be heated and we were to be out and we were to be at the fumigation lab. It was when I arrived at the fumigation lab and things got pretty interesting. I was, you could say, at the end of my rope. I was tired, exhausted, and worried that things weren't going to actually resolve after all this effort. Five months, five months of dealing with bed bugs. So when I arrived, you can imagine that I was spilling over a little bit to the employee. I was asking lots of questions, neurotically attempting to follow up as to whether we had done everything right. Everything was to be put in fumigation, be treated, and then we'd pick it up the next day. And as I spilled over, though, he started laughing at me. It was at that moment that I realized what I needed. (laughs) Here I was in all of this need. I mean, desperation. And what I wanted from this employee, he would have never known, but what I wanted was someone who would identify with me who would understand and then tell me, I've got this, your problem is going to be fixed. And rather, what did I get? A little bit of a chuckle. And so I went on to ask him, I said, have you ever had bed bugs? And he said, no, we haven't. I said, you know, in order to be a really good employee of this company, I think they ought to require that you have an infestation. Because it would be at that point, when someone comes to you for help, that you will get it. In fact, you'll get it better than anybody. You'll know how desperate they are. You'll know how sleepless they are. You will not laugh at them. (laughs) And friends, it is this way across life whenever we have a problem. We want two things. We want someone who has the competence to solve our problem. We are looking for that. When we go to them for help, we want them to have the competence and skill and expertise to solve our problem. But it's not just that we want our problem solved. We also want them to get it. We need them to have entered into the experience and understood it. In fact, that's what gives us the confidence that they are competent enough to actually address the problem. And this is what we find in Hebrews 7. It's a long, complicated chapter. It's the beginning of a longer section. And this mysterious figure of Melchizedek appears. He is said to be a shadowy figure of a priest who was to come. And we read several quotations from Psalm 110 of a royal priest who was going to come in the future who would be anointed in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for a priest to come in the likeness of Melchizedek? Well, it's simply that Melchizedek came from nowhere. He wasn't of the family, the line, where priests were supposed to come. In fact, he was already a priest before the giving of the law. And so it says in this chapter that he had no beginning or end. That's not that he was an eternal being by any means, but just simply he was appointed by God. He was a priest unlike the Levitical priest, of the house of Aaron, house of Levi. And Jesus is a priest like that. That was the one who was to come. This is the point being made. And this morning, we are being 
pointed and directed to this priest because he is a faithful one who fully identifies with us and yet has the competence and the skill and the expertise and the character and the accomplishments to actually deliver on what you and I need the most. And so this morning, ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table, we're going to consider three things about this high priest as to what we gain and why he is good for us. But the first thing that we need to consider is simply his identification with us. Up to this point in the sermon, the high priest role has been mentioned four times. It was in the first two verses of chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he's mentioned twice. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, he's once again mentioned And so we're now turning to several chapters that are going to focus upon the role of this high priest and what he gives us. But if you turn back to chapter 4, in verses 14 and 15, we see explicitly where this high priest role begins. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And as a high priest, Jesus sympathizes with us and that he shares in every temptation that assails us. And friends, this is the great grounds that when you go to Jesus in your problem, he doesn't smirk at you. He doesn't laugh. In fact, he gets it. He fully gets it. He entered into the hour of tempting and testing. The only difference for Jesus is that he didn't engage in our failures. That he fully identifies with us. He is there on our behalf. But he didn't do what we did. And so this is the beginning of our confidence that Jesus fully enters into the human fallen experience, except yet he himself is not fallen. And so he understands you. And when you come to him, you have a sympathetic, a compassionate high priest who readily awaits you. Now, the second thing is that we also need to consider his separation from us. Because yes, he identifies with us, but as we just said, he was without sin. And so he's separated from us. If you turn back in chapter 7 to verses 26 through 27, we find this highlighted. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And this is the thing about Jesus. It's why he is a priest unlike the Levitical line. He is a priest separate, appointed by God, given a specific office, And he was without sin. And so, unlike the other priests, he didn't need to make an offering for himself. He was the offering. He was the one without spot, without blemish, who was qualified to put himself upon the cross, to offer himself in our place. 
because he was undefiled. He was separated from sinners. He has been there with us in all of our temptation, but he didn't do what we've done. He didn't join us. He is separate. And friends, in our situation, this is the kind of competence that we need. We need to know that there's someone who is separate. That yes, while identifying with us and understanding us, he's also set apart from us. And so this is the second ground of confidence that we have in Jesus as a high priest. The third thing that we need to consider, though, is the benefit. The benefit of having a priest who identifies with us. The benefit of having a priest who is yet then separated from us. What do we gain specifically in this? Throughout human history, salvation and relationship with God has been much discussed. In fact, if you were to trace back in Greco-Roman philosophy, you would find a heavy emphasis in religious things. And when you look in the works of Plato in particular, you'll find an interest in what it means to ascend to God. And that language of ascent was used heavily throughout religious discourse about what it means for human beings to ascend and have relationship with God. It was oftentimes, there was a metaphor used, of a ladder. And so the focus for the religions of the world have been how do human beings climb that ladder? How do we ascend? How do we make it? There's something so unique about Christianity that is presented here. And if we can particularly put it in the world of the first century, where salvation was thought of as ascent, as climbing oneself up into heaven by the things that we do, our achievements and accomplishments, we gain something of what is so unique about the Christian faith. Because here, it's not about human beings ascending under their own efforts to improve themselves. But rather, the ascent does take place. But it takes place in and through the one who was qualified to ascend. The one who can pass into the heavenly places. The one who has an indestructible life because he was righteous. The one who goes ahead of us. And so follow with me in verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Jesus has been anointed he was appointed to be this mediator, that he has passed into the heavenly places and now lives to make intercession for you. Once for all, he offered himself, but he is not in a tomb. He has been raised and he's ascended to God's right hand where he now represents you and he prays on your behalf. He has delivered you. He is delivering you today and he will deliver you tomorrow. This is the great benefit that you have as one who trusts in this high priest, who identifies with you, sharing in all of your trials and temptations, but yet who was separated from you. And because of that, 
He can be a sympathetic, faithful, merciful high priest who stands in God's presence and mediates for us. He doesn't waver. He's not fickle. He's not unfaithful. And also you'll see in verse 28 that he's not elected. It doesn't depend on the approval of the world. But rather he was appointed. And he was appointed by an oath. And this takes us back to the covenantal promise in Psalm 110. That there would be a royal priest. Appointed like Melchizedek. He would be forever. This is him. No midterm election oust him from office. There's no impeachment. It's a continuous office without term limits. Because he does have an indestructible righteous life. And so you don't climb your way to heaven. Jesus has accomplished this for you. You ascend in him and enjoy communion and relationship with God by the one who's canceled out all your sins, by the one who holds all our hopes. And as the preacher says, he is a better hope, more solid. All the promises and the laws of the Old Testament, we're looking forward to him. He is their fulfillment. His responsibility is to intercede for us. Our responsibility is to go to him. Friends, he has done everything to convince you to go to him. And so the simple question, the application of the sermon, are you going to him? Have you gone to him? Have you looked to him for salvation? Have you asked him to be the one who bears your weight? That in him you relate to God? And then are you going to him? the high priest who lives today to intercede for you. That this is not some mathematical equation that we have. We have a living God who invites us to commune with him today, and we do so only through Jesus. Only he can intercede in this way. Only he can mediate. Are you going to him in your trials and in temptations? In your faults and in your failures, in your sin and in your shortcoming, are you going to him? And friends, this then builds the life that continues to go to him. One that depends, one that hangs upon Jesus, one that has no other boast. We do so because he's faithful. He will not fail you. And so let's go to him in prayer.